Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the LKM Co Youth and Education podcast. It's me, Aisha, again. This episode is one that I've been looking forward to doing for some time and it's with Natalie Pereira, who's the Executive Director and Head of Research at the Education Policy Institute. Natalie is very knowledgeable about all things related to school funding and she very patiently sat down and answered all the questions I had related to school funding. So this is a real kind of 101, school funding 101 episode for people who feel they need to know a little bit more about that topic and kind of want to know where to start. Natalie has had a really interesting career. She started off her career as a civil servant in the Department of Education and then she moved to the Deputy Prime Minister's office and for the last few years she's headed up the um, Education Policy Institute as Executive Director. Nat and I cover a number of things related to school funding. We talk about fairness versus equity, on which Natalie has really interesting points. And we even managed to put in an ep- uh, a reference to Black Mirror, which we both enjoy. So sit back, get yourselves a cup of tea, um, cinnamon tea maybe, and find out more about school funding with me while I talk to Natalie. LKM. Co believe society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? So I've started to record now. Miss Natalie Ferreira, how are you? I'm fine, how yeah. are you? I'm alright, you know, I'm good. I'm glad to come here and sit and check out your swanky semi-new offices. Cool, like. Very nice, and your cool team doing geeky stuff. I, they lo- I love geeks. Really, I mean, they're so geeky cool, that's untrue. Yeah, I, I saw people like, looking properly geeky now. Yeah. Doing their stuff. Uh, so that's good. Um, today I'm going to talk to you about, what is the full name of the report now? The Implications of National Funding Formula for Schools, mm-hmm. which is, um, you will lead the author on, and also... I'm just really interested in school funding. There's a lot of been out of it recently, and I thought you're basically the first person I think about when it comes to school funding. <laughs> I'm just like, yes, Natalie will sort me out so you <laughs> can learn some stuff. Um, so I'm here to funding 101, basically. No pressure then. <laughs> no, it's fine. You'll know more than I do, which is plenty, so I'll learn something definitely. I hope so. All right, so first up, um, you are Chief Badass um, at EPI. Can you explain what your role is and what it properly is called, please? <laughs> uh, so my official title is Executive Director and Head of Research. Um, that means I oversee the running of EPI um, with David Laws, the Executive Chair. He's here three days a week. Um, but particularly looking at the, uh, the research side of the organisation. So... Broadly speaking, we've got um, the large uh, majority of EPI does all of our research. So I've got four directors who lead teams um, across education and uh, mental health, and then a small comms team who organise all our events, our interaction with the media, get our reports out into the public. So yeah, 
So overseeing all that, making sure we're doing research on the right things, we're getting funding in and we're getting our word out. So how did you, um, when you introduced me to the team just now, there was a, um, a mental health person, you had academies, um, schools and then teachers. How did you decide um, what your research areas should be? Yeah, it was actually a really iterative process. When we started EPI or when we were making the transition from Centre Forum to EPI, we were thinking about what the big priorities were in education and then it was really hard to pin them down. So we had early years, we had the disadvantaged gap in vulnerable learners, we had mental health, we had teacher recruitment and retention and CPD and we had higher education, skills, technical education and all of these areas we decided quite early on that we wanted to cover but we acknowledged that it would take time to build capacity and expertise across all of those areas. So in the early days, we, uh, the majority of our reports were very much about schools. So they were about academies, about grammar schools, about faith schools, because that's where we had the expertise and the, the capacity. And then as we've grown, we're now expanding our work on early years, on mental health and teacher recruitment. So... Um, we were quite clear early on what our priorities were, but it's taken a while to build the capacity to have people working on all of those things. Yeah, we were talking just before we started recording actually about your, your growth this year, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, kind of, you've gone from uh, a much smaller team a few years ago to about 20 people now. Yeah, um, yeah. And kind of what, what drove the growth, basically? Well, it was, it, it was precisely that, wanting to cover all of those important areas in education and young people's mental health. Um, and we're lucky to have um, some core funding from our trustees, as well as bring in um, some external funding as well. So that's meant that we could grow our team, predominantly our research team, and bring in a combination of really experienced um, analysts who have worked in the DfE, who have worked, some of them have worked as teachers or um, have worked internationally in other think tanks, um, as well as fairly new and recent graduates to sort of build talent in EPI and have a good pipeline of, of researchers. I love the kind of talent building and pipeline bit, so maybe if we've got time later we can talk a little yeah. bit about that, it's really exciting and um, I don't think I always see it in other think tanks necessarily. So. I think it's really important. Okay, so why is education important to you? Because I think it has the potential to be transformational. I mean, it can't be on its own. And I think, thinking about funding, we can't expect schools and the education system to correct all of the problems a young person or family might face. But I think it really is the core of um, a young person's life, you know, they're, they're in education from the age of five to 16, and it does have the potential to really transform um, their life chances, really. Yeah, and how do you hope that the work that you guys do at Education Policy Institute can help to transform young people's lives? And that's exactly our aim. So we want, uh, so the aim of our work is to look at what's happening in education, whether it's funding, 
whether it's the deployment of teachers, whether it's the curriculum or the accountability system, whether it's technical education, all of that, look really independently and rigorously at what's working and what's not, so that if things aren't working, we can work with government, with the sector to correct it. Where things are working, we can look at how we can build on it and expand it and make sure there's more of it. Um, so it's as simple as that, really. We want to identify what's good and what's bad and have more of the good and less of the bad. I'm here for that, definitely. <laughs> it's interesting because like, when I think about educa- um, education and kind of the, uh, policy and think tank space, I think your so EPI is probably the organisation that's closest to the things that we are interested in, LKM Co, but from yeah. a slightly different angle. Yeah. So you guys are more um, probably more data yeah. driven than yeah. we are, and obviously you're generally more schools only, whereas we look at the youth space as well. But yeah. when I think about organisations that are trying to do the same thing, I definitely think EPI is kind of our closest ally in that space and approach, and as, as well as as we were talking before, kind of being non-partisan as well and independent in that respect. Yeah, I think our missions are definitely aligned. And I always describe it as we are independent, we're impartial, we're data-driven, but we have a very, very strong moral purpose as well, and that runs through the organisation and all of the staff that work here, um, that we're here not only to improve education, policy-making, generally throughout the country, but to... Uh, narrow the gap between the most disadvantaged and the rest. And so you've had a, a very, um, you know, uh, um, a career that spanned um, civil service and kind of um, you did worked in the DfE for some yeah. time, and you also worked in the deputy prime minister's office. And do you feel like that's been like an undercurrent to the things that you've been interested in in your career? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I had uh, so I worked in the DfE for about twelve years before I moved into um, the cabinet office and worked for uh, for the deputy prime minister, and um, in all of that I was definitely attracted to. Remember, I started out quite young. I was twenty or twenty one when I started out in the DfE. Twenty one. Remember those times? Oh my god! <laughs> I know, right? Um, and I didn't really know. I was working in a minister's private office and I didn't really know anything about anything. And oh, what do you know when you're... Nothing. <laughs> uh, and but you think you know everything, you think... Though, right? <laughs> Definitely think you know all the things. <laughs> but like 21-year-olds now know a lot more than I ever knew when I was 21. But anyway, so that was really good in terms of an oversight of what the department does because you're literally on the seventh floor and you've got a good overview of the department... And I was definitely, from an early stage in my career, attracted to areas where um, that that really matter in terms of inequality, so particularly the early years. Um, And that's why after I left uh, private office, I went and worked on the 2006 childcare bill, because that's what I felt really passionate about. And yeah, that carried on pretty much throughout my career, and then working in the Deputy Prime Minister's office in the last year and a half of the coalition government. I mean, that was just a crazy time to be there anyway. Um, And then it was interesting seeing how the two coalition parties uh, worked together to get things through, where some of the sticking points were. How did it work? I know you may be able to say certain things, but how how did it work? Um, 
so I mean there was always an attempt to get things agreed and by and large things were agreed across uh, the two uh, the two governing parties and there were really good officials in both uh, number 10 working on behalf of the Conservatives the DPM's office working on behalf of the Lib Dems and then a core central team in the cabinet office trying to uh, to work across both so there were you know at, at official level we were all part of the civil service and and working neutrally um, and then you know inevitably some of the really uh, controversial things civil servants couldn't resolve and and it would be escalated to either the quad or or uh, then the prime minister and the deputy prime minister to resolve. What is the quad? So the quad um, was uh, the prime minister David Cameron at the time, the chancellor George Osborne um, for the conservative side, and then the other two were the deputy prime minister Nick Clegg and the. Uh, well, Danny Alexander, who was the other Liberal Democrat and was the uh, Chief Secretary to the Treasury. So kind of like the executive decision-making yeah, body, right? Yeah, that's a really good way of okay. describing it, actually. Okay, that's interesting. And then, uh, if you couldn't work then, bad times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really bad um, But yeah, I mean, there were, there were things they agreed on, there were things they didn't agree on, there were areas where they compromised, so... As a civil servant, it was a really interesting time to be uh, to be part of and watching all of that. Yeah, I was just thinking actually. So, um, what did you learn from that time about managing conflict? Because obviously they had to work together because they were in government, right? But there were probably some fundamental differences because Lib Dems and Conservatives yeah. have fundamental differences. So, what did you learn about you know managing conflict so that things could be achieved at that time? Um, I I suppose the main thing is about like finding your common ground and where are the areas that you do agree and then where are your red lines and can you create a policy that avoids um, crossing either party's red line. Now that doesn't mean you get perfect policy and sometimes it means you don't get great policy because it's neither here nor there but not all the time. Sometimes you can get pretty decent policy um it might not be ideal but it's the best you're going to get from uh from a from a coalition or or similar type arrangement yeah so it's all about compromise basically and seeing what doesn't offend people definitely (laughs) definitely about compromise yeah i was just thinking it's a shame that you know you said really interestingly that you might not get great policy but you also don't get something too terrible so it's kind of in some ways, there's nothing that sets anyone on fire, but it's kind of, it, it's good enough, I guess. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, look, it would be unfair to look back on the coalition years and say there was no great policy. They were, the, you know, Pupa Premium um, is a great policy, I still think that. Um, so there were great policies, but inevitably, when you're in a two-party government, there will be compromise, and so things get watered down. Um, up by one party or another so it's just a, a fact of life when you're in that kind of government I think it's just life in general isn't it like whenever you're not just you there's compromise right yeah right in your family I was you just compromise. thinking that yeah <laughs> like, um, so on Sundays we have uh, 
like a system where we watch like a kids film with the kids um, and what used to happen is they'd have to decide it together but then you kind of get a film that no one really wanted because <laughs> like you know someone didn't want Jungle Book somebody wanted this and you had to kind of find so everyone would just choose the one that no one hated now we do it whereby it's a rotation so one person gets to choose the one they really really want okay which seems to work better actually for them <laughs> okay I mean that's in- I don't know how you could apply that to But like another good analogy is imagine like my son is 12 now and he eats really hot food, spicy food. But imagine if, yeah, I know. (laughs) But imagine if you have a child that doesn't and then you want to make a curry and you're like craving a really nice hot curry and you get to make the curry, but you can't put a lot of chili in it. Why are you describing our life? That was our life like the first five years. (laughs) It's only just changed. So like you get to have a curry, but it's not as hot as you would like it. Um, so, I mean, that's like making yeah. coalition government. We used to make it like semi-mild and then we'd add the hot sauce afterwards. Yeah, that's how we did it. Yeah, <laughs> But it's still suboptimal, like, because you've got to bake in the chilli. Yeah, everything. of course. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. You're actually describing our life for the last kind of three, four years now. It's, it's literally just changed and we're so happy. <laughs> um, so, um, in terms of school funding landscape, I said this is going to be like school funding 101, so I can learn stuff and people listening can learn stuff. Uh, the report was... I definitely recommend it for people who actually don't know a great deal about school funding, who are in the schools area and education area, but they're thinking, okay, I want an overview of what's going on. So, first of all, thanks for writing it. Thank um, you. And what's the what was the school that um, funding landscape up until around twenty sixteen? Brief overview. Um, it it was turbulent, right? Because we had this period from about. 2006 when the dedicated schools grant was introduced properly as a ring-fenced grant for schools and local authorities couldn't spend the money on anything else Um, and from early on um, many local authorities wanted the distribution of that grant to be fairer and I'll come back to what we mean by fairer or what some people mean by fairer Um, And both the Labour government and then the coalition government said they agreed that the distribution of that grant was out of date, um, but uh, none of those governments uh, were actually able to introduce a national funding formula. So you had years of uncertainty, and then when the coalition government came in, they did come close to introducing a national funding formula but they sort of backed away at the last minute. And so that's really why frustrating. Why is it? What was the, so you, you touched on it a little bit, and there's a bit in the report about it, about the difficulties of introducing the national yeah. fund. What were the difficulties, basically, and why has it taken a while? So ultimately, it comes down to winners and losers. Um, whenever you, if you have a fixed pot of money, whenever you redistribute that, you're going to have some areas winning, great. They're going to vote for you, and you're going to have some areas losing, and that's not so great. That's really bad times. (laughs) And so there there was that. But then there were quite some some quite knotty issues as well. Like, when I was working on uh, school funding, we would get pressed to introduce a national funding formula that reflected how much it cost to educate a child. And we don't know that, right? because every child is different and we could cost how much it it is to put one teacher in front of a class of 30 but sometimes you need smaller class sizes and sometimes you might want 
um, to offer a broad, really broad curriculum and sometimes you might not want a broad, broader curriculum um, and you might have um, a school where you've got more children with additional needs and anyway so it, it's really difficult to do a bottom-up funding formula because it does require you to um, to be quite definitive about how much it costs to do certain things. Um, there are also um, issues about small schools and how do you fund them and, you know, small schools in really rural areas, they need to be kept open um, because closing them would mean that... Devastate the community, It would basically. devastate the community, right? Yeah. And pupils wouldn't uh, have anywhere else to go. And I remember sitting down with some um, uh, people who were from Cumbria, local authority, in front of a big map. And they were showing me how if this school here closed, these children would have to like go around all these mountains and lakes to go to another school. But then there were loads of small schools in like Lewisham and Blackheath and Surrey. <laughs> they don't need small schools. <laughs> and, you know, they there's not a need for necessarily for all of those small schools um, and there are ways that they could operate more efficiently but politically to close them or even to merge or federate or whatever um, and for that to be dictated by a central government is also really really tough I just think it's a disaster system. right was, politically it's really bad <laughs> you don't want to be the minister responsible for closing lovely small primary schools irrespective of whether they're actually needed or not. Um, so there's a big political issue about redistributing money from one area to another and winners and losers. And then there were some quite knotty things about the practical way that you would design and implement a formula. And I think that's really what delayed delayed it for so long. Yeah, because when I was reading the report, initially I thought, OK, so national funding formula, because you, um, you know, I kind of started hearing around about it 2015, 14-ish, something like that. But actually, when I was reading it properly, it kind of started before that, which I don't think I was fully aware of, even though I was in schools at that time. Mm. Um, it wasn't as much on the horizon. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is? Or is it just because no one had really decided what was going on? Yeah, I think um, for local authorities and maybe school leaders, but mainly local authorities they could see the discrepancy in the amount of funding they were getting compared to um, other areas, particularly those in London. So there was a lot of pressure from them to government to uh, to address those inequities. And so there, there was that pressure in, uh, in Whitehall, um, but I think it was a good thing that it didn't necessarily cascade into the school workforce. Why is that at that time, do you think? I mean, why was it a good thing at that point that it didn't cascade into the wider school? Because, like, I don't think it would have been helpful for teachers to be worried about a national funding formula um, when it may or may not have, hap have happened or, um, yeah, it was still quite a long way down the line. Like, teachers have got enough on their plate already. Yeah, good point. And we've seen the effects now that people are worried about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, they're worried about funding overall, I think, yes. more so than the formula. Yeah, actually, that's a very good point. So in my head, I'm conflating the two. Um, is that wrong of me to do? Uh, no, I don't think it's wrong at all. But I, th I think it is important to um, 
to be clear about the problems with the overall pot of funding, if there are any, um, and then the implications of the formula. So um, there might be loads and loads of money in the actual pot of money, but the way that it's distributed might mean that your school loses out. Okay, got it. And part of the issue, as you were saying, was that government was trying to work out a way that it didn't seem that anybody lost out when that's kind of impossible to do. <laughs> well, they've, they've sort of done it with this formula because they put an extra 1.2 or 1.3 billion into the, um, the dedicated schools grant that was distributed by the formula in April. And they did it in such a way that um, they applied, without wanting to get too technical, they applied um, a funding floor so that schools who would otherwise lose under the formula wouldn't lose. Um, but that meant that schools that were set to gain, they still gain, but not as quickly or as much as they might do otherwise. OK, and did you say that happened in April of this year? Yeah, so this is the first year of the national funding formula. All right, thank you. So I'm just trying to get the timelines out in my head and yeah. so on and so forth. Um, so there's two questions relating to that which were, one of them was, um, so we spoke a little bit about dedicated schools grant. You mentioned that, from my understanding, there was some kind of inequality almost baked in under some of the earlier models. Yeah. Can you explain a bit about that? And something that the, it seems like the um, government tried to do to kind of make it seem fair, but then it kind of messed things up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that- yeah, that's sort of what happened. So, um, so before like two thousand and two, two thousand and three, um, money would just go to local authorities for all of their public services as one big pot, um, and they would get more if they had deprived communities, etc., and more people, etc. Um, and from that money, from that big pot for public services local authorities could choose how much they then spent on schools. And so if you take London as an example, London, A, had more money because they had more um, disadvantaged and deprived communities, and B, some London areas politically made it a priority to put more money into schools. So when the DfE um, created the dedicated schools grant in um, like the mid to the early to mid two thousands, they um, they said right, we're going to do three things. We're going to give all local authorities a per pupil amount uh, for in, in this new dedicated schools grant, and we're going to. Um, uh, I've lost my train of thought. We're going to ring fence it so it can't be spent on anything else, and we we don't want local we don't want um, schools to lose any money from what they're currently getting. So we're going to make the per pupil amount that we give to local authorities pretty much the same as what they're spending now. Which sounds great. But <laughs> kind of right. So London had um, a lot more money because they also had lots of BME pupils, right? So they were getting extra funding 
um, to support the education of black and minority ethnic pupils, um, pupils who um, also had uh, English as an additional language. So all these extra grants they were getting were all consolidated. And so London, the per pupil amount for, for most London boroughs was relatively high. Um, and then borough, um, local authorities outside of London didn't necessarily get as much, so they didn't spend as much. Um, and their per pupil amounts were relatively lower. And many of them were, at the time, more affluent than London. So that's how the inequality... The, 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 not necessarily inequality, discrepancy. but yeah, the discrepancy was baked in. Mm. Um, and then since then, demographics have changed over time and there's, no, there's not necessarily a clear-cut case for one area to get a certain amount of funding and another area to get a very different level of funding. And so what the formula does is say, right, we're going to start from scratch and say if you have, um, you get this much per pupil for all your pupils, irrespective of their demographic, but then if you've got a pupil with EAL or a disadvantaged pupil or a pupil with SCND, then you get a bit more. If you're a small school in a, a rural area, then you get a bit more. Is that because of the kind of running costs of a small school or something like that? Why, why is the reason that schools, small schools get more? Because they can't necessarily uh, secure economies of scale if they've got like 70 pupils or 50 pupils they still have a lot of the same fixed costs as a regular school. So um, they get a bit more to, to compensate for that. Okay, so that makes sense. So they're trying to make it viable for these schools to exactly. run because they have to be there for a wider social good, basically. They, they have to be there. And that was why we... Um, part of the reason we created that sparsity factor when I was working on school funding is a way of recognising that if that school were to close there'd be no other local school for children to reasonably travel to. Whereas if you have a small school in a London borough, if that school's closed, there might be 10 other options for, um, for a pupil to go to. Yeah, like I remember when I first worked in the school outside of London, um, I gave kids a detention and they were like, Miss, we've only got one bus because there was no other bus. <laughs> I was so used to like whatever get the next one there wasn't another one it was the one school bus <laughs> I, I had a similar thing when I did I did my work experience when I was 14 at a special needs school it was really interesting it was one of the um, most informative periods in my life I think um, but it like I went to school in the middle of Croydon like, surrounded by buses and yeah, trains and that and this is a bit further out. It was in Hayes going towards um, Orpington. Yeah. And um, on my first day after, after I finished at the school, I went to the bus stop and there was this lovely little old lady. She was in her front garden trimming her hair or whatever. And she said, oh, are you waiting for the bus? And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, you're very lucky. They're very frequent around here. And I was like, great. And well, she said, yeah, yeah, they come every hour. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you were just like... Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had that one. And that was like, I don't know, like 20 minutes away from the centre of Croydon. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of, the, it's different areas are so, so strange. Yeah. It's kind of, um, yeah. People who moan about London transport have never lived outside of busy bits of London. <laughs> Ever. I've never lived outside <laughs> yeah. South London. <laughs> yeah, so uh, transport links are good. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> 
Um, why did the... Okay, so we spoke about why the previous um, government and the current government felt pressure from local authorities because obviously certain local authorities um, didn't get as much They funding. felt like they were getting a bad deal, right? They suddenly had different demographics of pupils and families and cost pressure, so yeah. So one thing that really um, jumped out that I didn't realise was the fact that the number of academies and that in- increasing had added pressure to, to funding. Can you explain why that is, please? Uh, I don't know that they did. Oh, sorry. Pressure to reform school funding, I should say. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> So, um, see, this is what I'm talking to you like, but did they though? No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they did. <laughs> uh, so, the way that it works and the way that it's worked for decades, right, is that the um, that local authorities they get their funding from central government and then they set a local formulae to um, allocate money to their schools. Now, prior to, I think it was like 2012-13, the the formula factors that local authorities could use locally um, were, I mean, there there were quite a few of them. I think there were like 38 different factors that were set out in secondary legislation saying when local authorities allocate funding they can do it on all of these using all of these different factors and some of them were really weird right some of them were like based on the number of plants that you have or like if you have a swamp so I knew like a local authority at least one who had like a swamp factor (laughs) (laughs) what okay why not and like if a school has a lot of plants then it could get more money it's crazy, right? So people moving their schools to Kew Gardens. <laughs> <laughs> the local nature reserve, like, quick, let's move and, it. And so you had some local authorities that were using all of these factors and some that were a bit more pragmatic and just using pure, uh, fewer of them. So, but anyway, so, but the point is that uh, local authorities set the formula and then they um, allocate money to their local schools based on that formula. So when academies, um, the number of academies grew, the way that it worked, um, and it is weird, but but it's just the way that it's worked and it's always worked, uh, which always happened this way. But if you've got, um, so let's say Croydon, Croydon set, Croydon Local Authority, they set their formula and there were lots of academies in Croydon. So what the department does, the DfE, they look at Croydon's formula and say, right, according to Croydon's formula, these academies should be getting this amount of money. And they give the academies that amount of money. So even though academies are funded directly from the DfE or the ESFA, um, the basis on which they're funded is essentially determined by the local authority by the school's forum that operate within and advise the the, the local council. So if you think about it, that makes no sense, right? Because when you're an academy, you should be autonomous of the local authority. That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Because that's not kind of how academies were originally sold. Exactly. Right? (laughs) Right. So so if you're an academy, the the aim is you're autonomous from the local authority, etc. And so there it is a discrepancy and 
that's where we get into do you have a hard national formula where the formula set by the department like it is now but instead of putting all the money together for Croydon and giving it to Croydon to uh, to give out via their local formula they would then just give it directly to schools or give it directly to academies and give the local uh, give maintain schools uh, give local authority the money for maintain schools um, but we're in a we're still in that sort of limbo place where um, the the local authority uh, or the amount of money academies get is essentially still determined by that local formula. Now, in 2012-13, the coalition government reduced the number of factors. So do you remember I talked about like 38 factors that local authorities could use? They've gone down to now like 12 or 13 factors and... Like loads of local authorities were really annoyed about that. They were upset about their swamp grant. <laughs> I know. So they were like, but this school's going to lose loads of money and that school's going to, you know. Um, and the, 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 the justification for doing that was to make um, funding at least a bit more consistent at a local level. Mm. But like local authorities had a point because they were like, you're trying to make funding at a local area more consistent, but you're not sorting out this big national inconsistency. And they were totally right in that point, but um, but but yeah, I mean, there wasn't a national funding formula at the time, so we just tried to sort out some of the local swamp and plant factors, and yeah, like literally wade through some of that. <laughs> That's actually my most random fact of the day. <laughs> um, anyway, so now you're, we're in a position where academies they they don't want their fund they don't want local authorities interfering with their funding um but the department uh the, the reason they find it hard to remove the role of local authorities entirely is because there are like odd bits like that that people working in central government don't necessarily know like pfi contracts and you know, split sites, like things you would only know if you were in an area. Um, so now the department's challenge is that it has to, um, if it wants to have a truly hard national funding formula, then it needs to find a way of um, dealing with some of the really local nuances that exist. And do you guys have any suggestions for how that might be, or is it a bit of an intractable problem? No, I don't think it's intractable. I think that essentially there needs to probably be a top slice of money. Um, so again, using Croydon as an example, um, you maybe set the national funding formula and then you top slice a bit for Croydon and say, right, that's the money that you use to sort out your PFI contracts or like deal with the fact that you've got a school on a split site or whatever. So I definitely don't think it's intractable. But it's something that they shouldn't ignore. No. Um, but Well, because, because it is a discrepancy in the system. But at the same time, at the moment, if you want to know how much, like how local authorities allocate the funding... You can look on the DfE website and you can look up every local authority and you can look up their formula and you can see which factors they've used and how much money they're putting through each of the factors and what that means for individual school budgets. You can also look at how much they're top slicing from the dedicated schools grant 
to pay for central services, for example. All of that is a lot more than transparent than it used to be. But if you're an academy, right, let's say you're in uh, a, a, an academy chain, um, the academy could either top slice your budget, the mat, um, or it could take all of their academy budgets and create their own formula and... I was actually just thinking that. Yeah. yeah and then redistribute it amongst the schools. And then redistribute the it. Fit. And we don't know. Right now, we don't know what mats do. And there's another big discrepancy. Like, I could tell you how local authorities distribute money, but I cannot tell you how a mat distributes money. That's actually kind of a problem. Um, yeah. Because presumably individual mats will do it in a slightly different way. Yeah. And now we have a sizable number of schools that are, yeah. I was going to say, under mat control. Really. Absolutely. Um, well, I did not know that. No, so it's another really interesting um, challenge that the DfE will have to, um, I think they'll have to tackle it because I don't think it's, um, it's consistent that we can know what local, how local authorities are distributing funding, but we don't know at a mat level how the funding is being distributed. Well, this is going to be a later question, but it seems like a good time to ask it. You know, we sp- you skimmed over it at the beginning about fairness. Um, you know, to me, that inherently seems like a unfairness in the system. So how would a fair system of funding look to you? What do you think that would be? So I always say, like, I never liked calling it a fair national funding formula because I think fair fairness is really subjective. Um, but I think in terms of an equitable and transparent funding system, I think that's what I want a funding system to be. And, and would you pick, pick up the difference between uh, equity and fairness? Because there is a difference, but you know, how do you see that difference? So I th- my, my interpretation of fairness might be very different to yours. So, um, for example, when I was in the Department for Education, I had a grammar school head phone me up and say how unfair it was that loads of disadvantaged pupils got extra funding and his pupils didn't. To him, that was unfair. To me, that was not unfair. No one just saw my face, but I was like... (laughs) (laughs) I saw her face. (laughs) And um, As someone who went to a grammar school, but carry on. (laughs) But, so you can interpret... People have different views of fairness, whereas I think equity is in a way, easier to define. So, and in in this context, equity means that if uh, if your daughter, you have a daughter, right? If she goes to a school in um, Hertfordshire or if she goes to a school in, I don't know, Cumbria, she would attract a similar level of funding give or take, you know, teach the pay scales in and out of London. Um, so irrespective of, of where she goes to school, that's equity, you know, that at the moment or under the old system before the NFF, if she went to school in Tower Hamlets, she'd attract a very different level of funding, in fact, almost twice as much funding as if she had gone to school in Wokingham. Is that, though, to, um, due to the something that was interesting in the report actually the deprivation so that's that would be equitable if all areas in the country had the same kind of challenges or advantages Mm. but as we know they don't necessarily 
So yeah, how do you deal they with don't. That? But under the old system, they were funded essentially like they had the same demographics as they did in the eighties and nineties. Like that's how far back mm. the per pupil funding uh, rates were baked in. Whereas under the NFF, it's about your the pupils here and now. So if you have a community of pupils who are disadvantaged, who are maybe not native English language speakers, the funding system is flexible and dynamic enough to get funding to that area and to that school um, in, in, in that year, if you like. So it's dealing with demographic shifts, right? It's dealing with demographics. Okay, that's interesting, because yeah. if I think about the area I grew up in um, at the time, so when I grew up in like uh, 80s and 90s, it was um, white working class area. Yeah. Um, and when I go visit my mum now, like it's not that area anymore. So yeah. it's an interesting mix of um, loads of different nationalities and also probably quite a few more young professionals. Yeah. That kind of an area. Yeah. So the demographic, like it's very clear to see since the kind of like 15, 20 years that I lived there. Yeah. Cool. And so by having a formula, you deal with that each year you're taking into account the local demographics. Which does sound much more equitable, actually. Yeah, it does. It's interesting. Okay, so um, we spoke a little bit about why London has seen higher pupil funding than other regions, generally speaking. Okay, so I feel less of a dummy compared to when I first started talking, which is nice. Good. Um, Can you give me... So anything else that we need to kind of give for people who would be interested in national funding formula like me who are interested in schools and education but didn't know much about it so a kind of a guide to it for anything that we haven't covered um i mean essentially the national funding formula is made up of around nine formula factors that are a combination of um pu- what we call pupil led factors so a basic amount for all pupils and then a bit more depending on whether you're disadvantaged or whether you've got EAL or whether you're particularly mobile as in you move around from school to school. Um, so would that help, like uh, maybe traveller communities? That kind it of could thing? be a traveller community. Or refugees um, maybe. Or, sorry? I was going to say, or refugees maybe. Something yeah, like. or... Um, Services. Uh, service children, yeah. Mm. Um, and if you have what we call low prior attainment, so if you're a low attainer, then you attract a bit more money because you might need extra help. Um, or you probably do need a bit of extra intervention. Um, so you have the majority of the formula factors deal with those pupil-led um, characteristics. And then you have a few that deal with the context of the school. So we talked about the sparsity factor that, that helps to support rural schools. Um, you have a lump sum that's essentially for all schools to, again, cope with their fixed cost. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty, that's, that's pretty much how the formula factors work. Um, and then it's really important to remember that for the time being, um, the department is right to say that, the, um, that no school would lose funding as a result of the new formula. And yeah, explain that a little bit more. I'm I was like, that. really, guys? <laughs> um, so they're right in that, like we talked about, the formula has a funding floor, which means no school will lose funding as a result of the formula. But a school could lose funding if they have fewer pupils year on year, because it's a per pupil uh, protection. And they could lose funding if the local authority, depending on how the local authority sets its formula. Now, again, there are lots of rules about how the local authority can set its formula. 
and how much pupa, uh, schools could lose uh, or, or are allowed to lose, um, but it doesn't guarantee against no loss. When so the government's say, right, but also like not entirely right. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when they say that no one's going to lose that, do they mean in kind of real terms or in cash terms? Like, you know, because that's always another one where people are like, well, yeah, but things cost more now. Inflation. Uh, <laughs> they mean in cash terms. Okay, which yeah. is a bit sneaky, you know? Yeah. Bit, yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's a bit sneaky. <laughs> because if they, I don't know, say MPs are going to keep their salary and it's kind of, you've not lost out in 20 years' time. With the same salary as now with no inflationary links. Yeah. I think they'd be a bit yeah. irritated, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you say those things. Oh, of course, I know you're diplomatically keeping them. <laughs> so in terms of... Um, <laughs> clearly the uh, thousand head teachers who went out and marched about the... Um, fun, dis- disagreed with the, the government. <laughs> what can school leaders... Is there anything that school leaders can do in the current kind of financial climate what do you what do you feel I know that you're you're a governor and that kind of thing what would be useful for school leaders to think about in this climate so um making best use of the evidence of how to deploy your resource uh, including your teaching staff making as many back office you know at the risk of sounding like Theodore Agnew like going as far as you can in the back office and admin type functions and many schools say to us we've gone as far as we can like we literally there's nothing left to cut um yeah and I think that's probably one of the main reasons that schools who weren't previously before looking at becoming part of a mat are because of the potentially quite big savings in terms of back office and central staff yeah, potentially. Although some of the limited work we've done so far doesn't didn't it didn't fa- fa- find that there were um, a lot of uh, uh, scope for savings. Um, but I think that's something we need to look into again and update that work definitely. One thing that I did want to know though was there were lots of references to the twenty nineteen twenty twenty academic year. Mm. It, was like, it reminded me a bit of um, I don't know, like when I was young, year two K, everything was going to blow up basically um, in terms of computers <laughs> and stuff. So I wonder like, what's Do you remember gonna... that? The yeah, year two K and nothing happened. <laughs> nothing. Put on the computer is like that was yeah. fine. <laughs> okay. So what's going to happen in 2019-20 and what happens afterwards? I mean, we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? (laughs) Um, But but, but we're expecting there to be a spending review at some point next year because at the moment um, the government hasn't set budgets for each of the departments, the government departments, so education, health, and the spending review process essentially does that every four to five years. And um, so the reason we talk about 1819, uh, sorry, 1920, is that we have budgets up to 2019-20, and then we have nothing, like we don't know. So when the department does the spending review at some point next year... (laughs) Who knows what happens? (laughs) I mean, they could, they will need to do something for for at least 2020-21, it might so normally on a spending review they do they do a, a budget for four to five years, um, but they could, if Brexit is still dominating everything, they could just do it for one year, and then do a bigger one next uh, the following year. Who knows? But ultimately, that's what will decide how much money is uh, available to spend. Uh, in the next few years. So basically schools are still living with a reasonable amount of uncertainty. Definitely. Um, 
to be continued and to be confirmed, I guess. Yeah. What's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Natalie, thanks very much. I'm going to ask kind of some questions that aren't about funding now, just some interesting stuff um, uh, that's away from that. This is also interesting, but uh, kind of weird organisational stuff because I'm just interested in Yeah. It. So as you mentioned before, or I don't know if we were talking about it, but it used to be called Centre Forum. Yeah. And, you know, you went through a name change. And it's weird because I don't think I really connected Centre Forum and Epi because I'm yeah. used to you guys as Epi. What did you learn about that process? And also, if you were doing a name change again, what things would you do having been through that process? Um, I don't know. I thought, you know, we took it took a, a while to decide on a new name. Um, but when we landed on Education Policy Institute, it just felt right. It felt like it was everything we were looking for from a new from a from a name. It had education, uh, you know, first and foremost in the title. Um, Institute gave it the degree of credibility and rigor that we wanted, so people knew we were a serious organisation. And actually, I didn't know this at the time, but you have to apply to Companies House to prove that you earn the title of being an institute. Really? Yeah, so we had to um, like fill out this form and talk about the credibility and rigour of our research work, and we had to get supportive statements from prominent people in the field of research and poli- uh, policy and politics as well. Um and we managed to do all that, and that was that was fine, and we got uh, the approval. Um, but but yeah, I hadn't realised that. No, I didn't know that. So there, are, you know, um, there's certain you, like you can't call yourself an institute unless you cert- meet certain criteria. Yeah, basically. yeah. But I so I was confused because like we definitely had to go through that process, and I'm glad we did because I feel like we earned it. But then we got confused because like. On the tube, you see, like, the Hair Loss Institute. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I, don't want, uh, I don't want anyone to see me, but I was like, did they have to go through the same um, process of proving that their research... Maybe they were the research is rigorous. Incredible. I don't know. But it made me wonder, like, if you could get away with calling yourself an institute and no one really tells you off. But we didn't. You've, you've earned it, so you're yeah, happy about it. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell from my face? <laughs> you were like, but we're an institute. Are you really an institute? Are you, though? <laughs> and, um, so one thing that I was, uh, um, we were talking about is that you, uh, so Effie got some coverage in Cosmo. I know. <laughs> Quite a coup. <laughs> so first I was like, how did that come about? And secondly, why do you think it's important for very serious institutes and, uh, you know, policy-influencing organisations or people who, in think tanks or whatever to be covered in, you know, beyond the general media, so beyond um, Radio 4 Today programme, for example, yeah. or Ma, or, you know, various things like that. Yeah, so how it came about was we did um, some... Uh, some we, we, lo- we actually launched an event with the OECD, which they had this report which looked at... Um, the amount of hours that young people in different countries were spending on the internet. And so we wrote up um, a few articles which highlighted the fact that uh, 15-year-olds in the UK were spending a lot of time on the internet every day compared to other uh, children in other countries. And so um, that was a while back, actually, but Cosmo were doing this article on social media and the impact of social media 
and it was an article about Black Mirrors, which is a program that I love. Oh, I love Black Mirrors. Um, and I think it might be in an interview with Charlie Brooker as well, which was like even more amazing. Um, anyway, so they refer in that in that article when they talked about the impact of social media, they referenced EPI, and it was just a fleeting reference to um, the work that we had highlighted. Um, so that's how it came about, and for me that that was really good because we were reaching an audience that we wouldn't ordinarily reach. So like you say, you know, probably the majority of people who engage with our research are Radio 4 Today programme listeners. Um, and, you know, they might pop onto the BBC website and read articles about our research. Um, but you're very unlikely to open an edition of Cosmopolitan and see anything about education research. So to be able to reach that audience was great. And for me personally, anything that keeps your job new and like fresh was really exciting as well. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. It's definitely good. And education affects like everyone in some respect. Definitely. Um, so audiences do need to know about it yeah normally access other things yeah um, and really yeah and the mental health aspect of our work which we haven't talked about mm. a lot now um but the mental health aspect of our work is incredibly important to us and increasingly um really resonating with um the outside world as well you know people get that there are more there's more prevalence of uh, of uh, young people reporting mental health issues and things like anxiety and eating disorders and all of that. Um, so the awareness of um, mental health has definitely risen in the last few years. And that's only a good thing, in my, in my, my view, that's a very, very important thing. Um, Natalie, thank you very much for your thank time. You. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, me too. Please, bye. <laughs> bye. Hey people, I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. 1. Subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. 2. Share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. 3. Review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.